This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. Here's uh, Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast together with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. And today we're, we're having a, a conversation with uh, Giacomo Rizzolatti, who gave a fantastic talk this morning in our 10th uh, edition of our summer school, Barcelona Cognition, Brain and Technology. Um, so Giacomo, so you, you were building on, on, on your, your, your long tradition of work on the mirror neuron system. And the outlook of your talk was to move from a mirror neuron to the mirror brain. This is really now the ambition, right? To show the more general relevance of this of this general idea. But maybe to, to really understand the significance of it, it would be very useful to really un- try to understand in detail what we exactly mean with a mirror neuron, right? So what, 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 what's the core behavior or what's the core base of evidence that, that makes you speak of a mirror neuron? Well, the basic evidence is still the old one, that we have neurons in the motor system which fire when the monkey grasps an object and the one monkey, uh, when the monkey observes another people doing it. Note that should be the action with a similar goal. It's not simply visual motor transformation. It's exactly you see something and you do something similar. Mm-hmm. So that's the basis. That subsequently, in humans, it's very difficult to record single neurons. But we have a lot of data with fMRI and now more recently with uh, gamma rhythm that uh, this mechanism is really diffused. It's not only in the premotor cortex. That's why we think that we have to enlarge the concept. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but, but let's first look at the, at the work in the in the macaque monkey, where where the, the, the core ideas were sort of fleshed out initially. So, what are the how how general is this effect? So you say, okay, it must be related to the same goal. So that means if I observe another agent, uh, or that's sort of morphologically comparable to myself, uh, perform a certain task or a certain goal. Let's say, eat a peanut or I perform this action myself being the macaque monkey in the monkey chair, you will find neurons in specific areas of its cortex that respond to both that observation of the goal-directed action and the execution of the goal-directed action. What's the minimum set of, of neurons that are involved in that? What you mean by minimal? Where we know is the parietal lobe, two areas in parietal lobe, area AIP and PFG. Mm-hmm. We know about area 5, and recently it has been discovered in London by Roger Lemon that corticospinal tract mm-hmm. has many neurons with mirror properties, both starting from area F5, but also from primary motor cortex. Mm-hmm. So that means we have a parietal, premotor, motor kind of circuit Exactly. That would sustain this, I would say right? there is a pattern, a schema, mm-hmm. using the word of Michael Arbib. Right. There is a sch- motor schema which mm-hmm. is uh, rather diffuse. It's four or five centers which mm-hmm. collaborate. Okay. All together, they create a motor schema in my brain, mm-hmm. and now I see the same motor schema in your brain. Right. I understand it. But now, so we have a sort of parietal premotor motor circuit, but that's still fairly broad. So how many neurons within that circuit would you really say are now identifiable as mirror neurons? 
and how many of how big a fraction will be doing other things? Uh, I don't know. Now we have a method in which we can maybe learn more because in the past uh, we have a single neuron and uh, it was very hard to make a sample. But now the technology allows you to record from several points in the same electrode and to put many electrodes in parallel in the cortex. So, for example, my colleague Bonini, young uh, so assistant professor, uh, now is recording from many, many neurons, so we can give you in short time data at the moment. <laughs> I cannot tell you. What's your expectation, though? What do you expect? Well, in layer three, I think it's a large number of neurons have this property. If you go down, they are motor. Mm -hmm. So okay. I think there is a, a laminar distribution. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in the monkey, it's very difficult to record it because part of a five, it's laying near the sulcus mm -hmm. and so if you go down with the electrode you change continuously columns mm -hmm. you cannot do a columnar work right. so easily okay so now we have this basic circuit we know mm -hmm. neurons especially layer three participate in that but how did you really stumble into the existence of these neurons was it like a chance discovery or you were really looking for them you knew where to look and you found them no it was not a priori how we can think such a strange thing a priori so what we are doing, we were studying the motor system, but uh, with a kind of a logical approach. So looking if there are visual responses, if the visual responses are related to food or to other objects and so on. And we <coughs> first discovered neurons which fire in relation to the presentation of objects. And that was something that we did in collaboration with Japanese group. And now these neurons are called canonical neurons. What they do is just a transformation of object into action. The surprise was that some of these neurons do not want the object, want the action. And that's how we discover it. Mm -hmm. But then what, what was the specific paradigm? What was the very first experiment in which you, in which the penny dropped, if you want? And you said, okay, <laughs> we found it. This is it. Uh, I must say that we observed this phenomenon several times. And I was the guy who tried to say, be calm, it could be an artifact, because my young colleague said, we have to publish, send to nature, send to science. <laughs> I said, well, let's, let's wait a bit. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it appeared in brain, and it has been cited 5,000 times. Mm -hmm. uh, very good paper, but how many experiments does it take for you to be convinced? Three years, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because we have to record EMG. You know, we are in the motor system. We are not so obsessive like Roger Levin who record 25 muscles. But anyway, we recorded the most important to be sure there is no artifact due to movements. Right. Now, in the response of these neurons, are there response patterns? We look at, 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 at uh, peristimulus histograms or... or rates of, of firing, yeah. but is there anything special or unique about the response patterns of these neurons? Or you can just look at the rate and that's well, it? Well, at the beginning we tried to find something, but at least with the methods that we have at the time, we haven't found anything. It seems the intensity most frequently is uh, higher, stronger for action than for observation. I think when um, when we came on to start talking about the function of the mirror neurons, uh, you gave a quote, I think, from, is it Mark Generod? 
And, and that was that a mere visual perception without involvement of the motor system would only provide a description of the visible aspects of the movement of the agent. But it would not give precise information about the intrinsic components of the observed action, which are critical for understanding. So uh, what I take from that is that you see the mirror neuron as the path for how our brains understand what other people are doing. Now you're touching a very dangerous thing, because <laughs> when you said understanding, you say, what do you mean? Well, it was the quote, yeah. <laughs> no, it's correct, you are correct. <laughs> it's me that the people say to me, why you don't use recognizing, or why you don't use another words? But I think with understanding, we imply that you not only recognize the action, but you can generalize to say that's grasping. It's not grasping with the hand or grasping, it's just grasping. Instead, the visual area cannot generalize because when you see, for example, a hand with a glass, you cannot generalize to the other hand because it's a visual area. They just say this hand and this glass. So generalization is something which really, I think, requires the motor system. That's why I prefer understanding in the sense that you can use it for many purposes, not just describe what is going on in that moment. And people have, have taken this idea and they've kind of flown with it to sort of imagine uh, simulation engines inside our heads that are able to uh, imagine actions uh, and create them without without performing them. And also when you see a person, you can recreate that inside your head. How far do you want to push it in that direction? Well, I like very much the speculation of the philosopher Goldman, Alvin Goldman. He, he decided to split in lower level a mirroring and a higher level mirroring. Lower mirroring is what I described. Higher mirroring, in one you cannot understand immediately, and then you try cognitively to replicate the data, so you make an effort from, from yourself, from internal. Instead, mirror neurons tell you immediately what's going on. But I can be unable to understand, then I think, well, what I will do in this occasion? What is the point of view if I move my head? That's he called it uh, higher order. And, and how would that affect, so if you, if you observe a novel action that you haven't seen before, how, how would your mirror neurons operate in that context? Would they try and generalize from something they have seen? Uh, I don't know about single action. We did an experiment in which there is a pattern function, like make a chord or a guitar. So what happens that you learn it by cutting, for example, these two fingers, then two this finger, and then you reorganize. Reorganization is not made by mirror neurons, but by the prefrontal lobe. The prefrontal lobe is the head of orchestra who, who put together this elementary movement that you took away from the mirror system and organize uh, the new chord, the new movement. I suppose also the new movement, but I have no data about sequences. That's, that's a good metaphor because both Paul and I are guitar players. So, uh, <laughs> but Tony is a lot better than me. <laughs> ah. So my mirror neuron system is now active with the thought of, of oh, us you, learning you chords from each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they, uh, But what, what I get you're saying is that I might not know the chord that you're showing me, but I know how to put my fingers in each of those places. And so I can build up the representation of the whole chord from these components which I recognize. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But so, okay, so... 
But now there's, there's a little challenge here, I believe. And I don't mean this in sort of a metaphysical way, but because, as you said earlier, and also the examples you showed us, there must be a matching of the goals of the action, right? You, you make a sort of movement to, let's say, obtain uh, a peanut, right? So there's a goal. But there's a potential circularity now, because how can the observing monkey, in this case, from, which you're measure, from whom you're measuring, how can you be certain about the goal of that other agent? So I could also say, is this, does it really need to be goal, or is it, let's say, the directedness of the action itself? Like there's an action, the action is oriented towards an object, and it's that relationship that has to match, irrespective of what the goal might be of the other agent, or at best, I just infer the goal of the agent from this perception-action relationship. So how are, how are we going to bring in goal here? Do we really need it? Well, I think I infer, but remember that motor neurons in premotor cortex, they code already goal. So if you admit that one neuron A fire give a certain information, it doesn't matter if it's my my will, which move the hand, or when I observe him, I move. So the output will be the same because the connections are the same. And so in this moment, the action, it's really recognized. Mm -hmm. But may, if I may, there is one point that you may be marginally touched. There is a contradiction because to imitation, according to ethologists, is to repeat exactly the movement. To reach the goal, I can use different. That's a point which has been raised by Chibra, mm -hmm. and he was right, because there is a, 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 ten, a tension mm -hmm. between the two concepts. You because could not have both. Right. And I think monkey have only the capacity to reach the goal. Human have an, an additional system with for imitation, which mm -hmm. you can replicate exactly the movement Oh, that was done in the humans, of course, of the finger in the guitar or mm -hmm. play piano, mm -hmm. all this stuff. But in that sense, do you believe that the internal state of the monkey will then modulate the response of the mirror? Let's imagine we, we talk about objects and actions that are ambiguous. I can, uh, there's an object I can use in two ways, but depending on whether I'm thirsty or hungry, I would go for pattern A or B. So would you then, if, if the monkey is hungry, then its mirror neuron system will bias towards the hunger interpretation. If it's thirsty, it will go to the thirst interpretation. Like, is this internal motivational state now defining the mirror neuron response? Or would you think that the mirror neuron response would be independent of that? No, I suppose it should be a modulation, but I don't have empirical data mm -hmm. to answer you. Uh, there is a group in Germany who noticed that the intensity of response is stronger if uh, the object that you act upon have significance for the monkey. Mm -hmm. right. So it's much stronger if it's cheap food than if there is something which is not interesting for, for many neurons. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, there is something in this sense, but uh, right. it's not really an experiment done. Mm -hmm. you, you described an experiment which cast some light on this question of, of the motivated nature of the, the system, which was where you compared humans with monkeys and with dogs. And if we observe a human eating or a monkey eating a banana or a dog eating, in each case, and it was quite remarkable, you said that there's a mirror neuron response even for the dog eating. 
And you compared that with the situation where uh, we're looking at communication, where you're looking at a human speaker. Uh, I think you were looking at a monkey making lip movements, and then you were looking at the dog barking. And in the case of the dog barking, there was no mirror neuron response. So the mirror neuron generalizes to dogs eating, but not to dogs barking. Now, I, I, this is interesting, but I, I didn't quite grasp why you think that is. What's the, what's the core explanation? It depends on what you have inside yourself. You have some motor programs, which include biting, and the dog have the same motor program, biting. We have a program for talking, dog have a program for barking, but we don't have a program for barking. So barking we have to understand in a different way. But I can imagine barking and making kind of barking <laughs> sounds. Metaphorically, you know. actually, we even <laughs> use this also Metaf- for humans. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. I often tell Tony, stop barking at me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then then I, he says, stop, <laughs> stop banging your tail. But. I can also bark here. <laughs> <laughs> I know what means for the dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but actually, we can push it a bit further, right? So do you believe that, imagine it would not be a dog, but it would be, let's say, an animal with whom we, have a, with whom we don't share any sort of morphology, like we take a whale, okay? Do you think <coughs> that we, we need some sort of morphological matching with that other organism or not? Like the, at least the dog has still, let's say, the kind of face we might recognize, we have to put so we anthropomorphize dogs also yeah. very often. So is that an important modulator of this? If I have a non-anthropomorphic agent who would express these kinds of actions, would it then break down? Well, I think the basics should be to have a motor program. Of course, the motor program of biting is present also in other animals, like in rodents. Mm. But uh, mm-hmm. morphologically, it's a bit different. Uh, well, I mean, an- another difference between those two uh, situations is that in the eating you have a cue which is the food item which maybe helps your mirror system see the dog biting as being like biting whereas in the in the bark there's there's nothing to cue that that's what the action is i wonder if 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 the mirror system activation is a product of this mixture of the visual cues and sort of recognizing the motivation. You know, that's a very good point because the mirror neuron is really goal-directed, but mm. goal must be in, in animal life, in the monkey life, it's not a abstract gesture, so goal is an object. It's mm. dark. So maybe really you're right that uh, the food uh, helped it. We have to do another experiment. <laughs> 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 but in that sense, you could also argue it's about the invariances in the environment and the environment you share with other agents. So for instance, imagine I I would live together with whales. Um, I might be able to develop mirror neuron responses with whales or them with me, if I learn how to catch herring, let's say. Um, Would you you believe that indeed it's the statistics of the interaction with the environment and also the consistency of our behaviors as compared to other agents that would allow you to then learn those mirror responses in this context? No, I prefer to think that we must share the same motor program from mm-hmm. uh, for, from ev- from evolution. As a matter of fact, the problem with rodents, we have such a difficulty to find mirror neurons in rodents, but because we have no no communication with rodents, rodents do- look at neurons and go away. That's finished. Mm-hmm. With the with the monkeys, much easier. So, 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 so you believe that the mirror neuron system is learned on top of, of behavioral priors? 
or is it a morphological prior because we have hands and well that's even more complicated no i think the basis should be to have a motor program and the motor program improve increase i mean i play tennis and federer play tennis but mm -hmm. i think there is a big difference so why because he learned much more than me and maybe has more talent and so on but anyway of course all of us can play tennis after three lectures mm -hmm. but then it's a big difference be between who has been mm -hmm. practice and who has not okay but now th this this idea that it's all predicated on shared motor programs what's the data you have to support that well first because we discovered it in the motor cortex mm -hmm. second because uh, before claiming that also for example disgust is mirror neurons is because when you stimulate this area both in monkey and humans you have a feeling of disgust you you, you can reach uh, vomiting if you mm -hmm. want and so it, there is a motor program for that, which goes from uh, insula probably to other subcortical center. And one arrive input mm -hmm. from external person. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so we're going to get to those, that data a little bit. You no, know, I am very happy about this uh, emotional stuff because mm -hmm. it's easier to demonstrate. Right. Mm -hmm. but, no, the, 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 but this is really an important point, right? Because I could also say, look, the brain is geared towards generating action. That's it. That's whatever it, that it does under all conditions with or without mirror neurons, right? We, it has to right, generate, right? right? And they, so that would mean that uh, that feature of being dependent on a motor program is non-specific to the mirror neurons because everything depends on, on, on motor programs. Motor program is the basis, yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. But then the, the other thing is you show also from this data from Roger Lemon that there appears to be, at least if you look at mirror neurons in the corticospinal tract, because that, that's what he documented, right, at the single cell level. There seems to be some competition between them, because actually some mirror neurons are, are suppressing their response. Is that significant to you, the idea that there might be competition <coughs> across mirror neuron systems? You know, when he described it, the moment I thought, well, great, so we have found a system, that's his idea, the whole group of London has this idea, that it blocks. So when I see you doing something, uh, I have the activity of the mirror neurons, but I don't repeat your action. So it should be a blocking mechanism. And maybe this uh, lemon mechanism is part of it, but I don't think it's the whole story because there are some patients with lesion of the frontal lobe and they are unable to stop. So let's call it imitation behavior mm -hmm. or utilization behavior. Right. So the doctor put the glasses down and the patient that take it put mm -hmm. on his uh, nose, so it's uh, sure. Mm -hmm. So it, this, it means that there is a multiple control. I think the control of Roger Lemon mm -hmm. is the subtle control. Okay. You, you are uncertain, do or not do, mm -hmm. then stop it. But the big control is from prefrontal lobe. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I get. And you touched uh, uh, quite briefly on the ability now with imaging techniques to to look more at the temporal structure of processing in these neurons. Uh, what is it that you think we can find out from this temporal profile? Well, it's difficult to say what, but certainly time is very important mm. because you know, for example, in the case of tools that we have data, the people think the tools, you recognize the action together with your hand movement. Instead, it after that, you first recognize somebody is grasping and then you know that it's tool. Uh, 
I suppose maybe some disease could be important, but your timing is wrong. But I don't know. I never thought how to demonstrate why time is important because just the word, you know, we add time to space. Seems yeah. great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have never thought a <clears throat> peculiar, particular case in which time should be important. Well, we've been thinking about time a lot at this school, you know, and how how timing. It relates to decisions and actions and so on. So it was interesting for me, you know, and I think it relates maybe also to this goal-directedness because if you can see peaks in this profile and match them maybe to some aha mo- moment, you know, I, and, and then also it might be interesting to look at ambiguous situations. So right. if you're looking at the dog biting, does it take longer to see Why are you going to bring up biting? the dog again, Tony? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. You are right. Uh, <laughs> Beside the dog. But what he said, I think it's very important, is that we are very biased still to a kind of low-level motor system and so on, but the decision-making and so on, mm-hmm. in this case, the time will be much more yeah. important than we can give you now as an right. example. But but maybe you have this, actually, this, this information, because if you measure for, from this sort of parietal um, frontal system and the motor cortex you will see responses develop over time as the monkey is responding, right? So does that show any kind of temporal structuring of that response? Can we say we see a clear parietal frontal movement of neural activity and then maybe we see again some top-down information going back to to the parietal area. Is, is that a pattern you, you would that's, observe? That's something extremely interesting. But up to now, we just make very naive experiment, just they observe an action. It will be interesting if they think about the intention, why he's doing that to eat. So we have to render a bit more complicated. Mm. But first, it was the beginning. The second, my co-worker, was Georg Bank, who is a visual physiologist. So he stressed that we have to study first vision. Mm. And that's what happened. Right. But now, if we anchor it to intention, yeah, so that's, that's key. Right? Just that I think. Exactly. You know, and, yeah. and you could also imagine that you then could have an experimental paradigm where the intention is actually changed. There's an ambiguity in the task, and first it appears to be, okay, I'm going for this object, but then I actually go for that one, uh, go for the microphone or for the cup. Um, where would you, where are you predicting that kind of intentional processing then happens? Where is this intention set in, in the brain? Well, my intention or others' intention, because... Well, I guess from the mirror neuron <laughs> perspective, first your own, and then the other, right? Well, for my intention, I think it's very important. It's the pre-supplementary motor cortex, RF, uh, maybe also the singular, but mm-hmm. the area of the mesial cortex. Mm-hmm. And it's also for... Uh, well, you touched a good point, because... Uh, uh, Tilner in London make an experiment in which he replicated the uh, readiness potential. Readiness potential appear when you are ready to do something, but and then he asked people to observe another person and they can predict when they will do the movement. And they found readiness potential in the mesial part of the brain. They don't know where because that's surface electrode. But so it's it's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. Right. It will be, uh, it's an experiment, sometimes I forget to mention, but it's very good. (laughs) Yeah, so I think, I mean, I'm imagining that you have multiple motor programs which are, can be activated when you start observing an action. 
and then these are competing to be the best match to what you're observing and that you might see that in the temporal evolution of the activity and that at some point you say aha it's going to he's going to bite the banana yeah rather than shove it up his nose or mm -hmm. whatever. right and so this would be a good way to get at the intention maybe yeah well that's the idea of Friston. yeah that our neurons actually are bayesian predictors of uh, but this is the point how many actions we can predict so mm. you have to put some limit uh, and instead my view is when i see an action it's immediately activated the motor program corresponding and so i don't need prediction but mm. i am very open i think it's a very clever idea that uh, mirror system mm. can act as a predictor but not but but there's something tricky in the background there in my opinion because if if we talk about motor program and motor schema it gives this idea of a very discretized action space. Yeah. But given but given our our morphology, given our skeletal muscle system, that space and the goals we can can attain, um, it's basically an infinite space. Right? So so how do you really see then this mirror neuron system develop into its response? Because I, I cannot uh, either you have to say it's it's a library, I have a huge set of possible motor programs that are linked to possible sensory states and goals that feed them and I choose from this long list which computationally is problematic in my opinion right so we have to think about a more dynamic solution to that to the motor space encoding so how do you think about the motor space encoding in this context well when we first discovered it, uh, this uh, <coughs> property of a motor cortex I suggested that we have exactly a vocabulary of motor act, but only for the hand. So we, if you think in the monkey, there are not so many. They can grasp like that, grasp like that, push, and so on. Mm -hmm. If you increase and think about all the possible movement, I think it's more difficult that for Friston, because the system should predict, I don't know how many actions. The only solution could be that context already cut some of them and so of infinite they become mm -hmm. a limited number so i think the context is very important in deciding how many action so if i'm here i'm not going to swim mm -hmm. right i well, hope, I, I hope. <laughs> no this this could actually happen you know <laughs> no but but so, so you're saying is okay there are there are movement primitives at a relatively high level like grasp Absolutely. push yeah pinch Beach. and so on this is not such a huge set, but I'm not worried about their combinatorics, like um, reach, push, grasp. That's not my that's not my concern. I'm not going to worry about how I link them together because within each of them, there's a goal and an action associated, if you want. Right. Or it's, right. it's actually right. like a, a triad, right? There's a sensory state, a goal state, an action state, and this is now my primitive. And then this is my mirror primitive. Uh, my mirror primitive is grasping, but if you grasp to reach or to place, yeah. I think there are two primitives exactly. put together. It's not one. Okay, and that's how you assemble that's your your motor programs if yeah. you want. Okay, and so the schema would act predicated on these discrete actions like reach, grasp, point, whatever. My schema, but yeah. I suppose there are higher order mm -hmm. schema for reach to grasp, reach to put, reach right. to throw, and so on. But then how does it scale to Tony's case who actually can play guitar? 
Well, with guitar, the idea, it's not only mine, ethologists also think that uh, it, you somehow split what you observe in elements, mm -hmm. you store okay. this element, and then prefrontal cortex put together this mm -hmm. element in a new sequence, mm -hmm. which is completely you, you don't know before. Okay, fine, but the granularity of now the action states might be very different from the granularity of the goal states, because the goal is, I want to play that chord. Right at, at level of intention, I want to say I want to play a G major chord. Yeah. Right, but in terms of the action space, the granularity seems at a much lower level of resolution, because I'm, I, I look at single digits and how I place them. So how would I bring that together with that goal of playing the G major chord? Well, at the beginning, somebody has to teach you. At least you have particularly talent for music, but. Uh Mm -hmm. Typically, I think you see the teacher, which is showing you how to put the finger, mm -hmm. and you replicate. Okay. I, I, but also, I think your 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 goal is also to make the sound. So, and and mm -hmm. when you're observing someone else mm -hmm. playing the guitar, you would you would be listening for the sound mm -hmm. and watching their fingers. Yeah, but do you see so the problem after? Be because first, we agree there's some sort of triad. There's a perceptual state. There's a goal state. There's an action state. The action states are built on primitives. And then when I try to match it to the idea of playing a chord, your goal state is to reproduce a sound, right? Or to play the G, label mm. to G major. But now the way Giacomo described it is I'm going to assemble the chord from having a mirroring of single of digit C. movement. So now I have two levels of description. and I, I have to link the lower level to the higher level. So do you then just say, okay, I just percolate now that sound of the G major chord down towards a single digit movement. So I have a hierarchy, I have a hierarchical mirror encoding, if you want. Yeah. Or, or, or is something else going on? That means I have sub goals that could say, it be a feedback this finger from here. Sound? Well, I mean, people talk about chunking, don't they, in this situation? Exactly. So, exactly. so you assemble the whole G major mm -hmm. chord as a chunk. And so you're Giacomo's lawyer now. Well, no, but you've... <laughs> He knows how to play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, I'm not very good at it, you know. <laughs> okay, so the other thing in terms of generality, you, you did this beautiful experiment where you actually not only used biological effectors, but also robotic effectors to see, does it generalize to tools, does it generalize to, let's say, non-human but maybe still anthropomorphic effectors. So how general is, when does it break down? What kind of effector can I present to the monkey that if you want at the threshold of still giving me a mirror response? No, no, no. We have to distinguish now monkey and humans. Okay. We did the experiment with Giorbang and um, people in Leuven teaching the monkey to use a tool. What happens is that the circuit which is activated is just grasping. They know how to use the tool, but there is no human, are probably the only creature which have in the parietal lobe an area which is really specific for tool. So even when the monkey is very fluent in using a rake, nothing happens in the brain. I don't know where it is raking, but probably it's together with grasping movement. But, but this is counterintuitive, right? Because monkeys can be pretty uh, proficient tool users. No, not like so sticks or not so good as we are. Maybe not so good as we are, <laughs> but still. I don't need the lawyer here. 
They don't play guitar. <laughs> they, don't play. they do it just in a different way. <laughs> they play like Jimi Hendrix at the end of a concert, right? They just smash them. But so, so you're saying, but then uh, the human specialization for tool use, yeah, you would see as having, uh, let's say, emerged or having differentiated from the general motor system as a specialization. I think so, but not because we are learning. I think it's uh, evolutionary. It's a prior, yeah, right. Exactly. Evolutionary, because it's only on the left side. It's not on the right side. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the monkey, there is nothing which is so strongly lateralized. It's like uh, language, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. But is, do you also see that in this human specialization, is the way it innervates the periphery unique in any way? Or the way it's linked to other neural systems and the way it well, links I down think it's, it, it's, the cortical I mean, anatomically, track. it's mm -hmm. very close to the region where you have uh, movement of the fingers. Right. Although when you use a tool, uh, it's a completely different way mm -hmm. because you, your tool is solid stuff. It's a, mm -hmm. you, for example, if you do an experiment, and instead of using a rake, you take your hand and you use as a rake, mm -hmm. you have an activity in the area of tools. Mm -hmm. So the tool is not considered a tool, but it's considered an instrument. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, if we if if we now think about language, I know it's a bit of a jump, okay, but still we could think also about language in terms of actions. We have speech acts, we say words, right? Now in a conversation I might make predictions about the things you're going to say, what your goals are in saying that. Mm -hmm. So, do you think as much as you have a tool specialization, do you also see language production as a specialization of a mirror neuron-like substrate? Or you see it as completely disconnected? Well, you know, with language, we wrote some years ago, my, I think 15 years ago, a paper with Michael Arbig in which we, in which we claimed that at least uh, semantic we understand because it derives from gesture. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that imagine grasping. So I understand grasping, but I think the word grasping has no, no meaning. Why, why it's grasping and not something else. That's true for semantic. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about syntax. Okay. Syntax, mm -hmm. I prefer not to, mm -hmm. to speak because it really is so complicated. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't have any model of uh, neurophysiological model of right. how we can explain okay. syntax. So here I am like Chomsky. Okay. Not for us. So now the, the last part of your talk, you you showed these really exciting results that you were obtaining looking at at uh, humans who were in, had intracranial recordings. So these were epilepsy patients yep. um, with implanted electrodes. Um, why did you move in that direction? Because you were already doing fMRI, you have the monkey model. Why was the intracranial patient for you so relevant and, and important? Well, I was really a bit disappointed in the last year with fMRI because I think fMRI at the beginning was extremely precious at the time when it was the beginning uh, in London, in Mon Montreal and so on. Every paper was something new. Then I think they feel almost finished. The people start to think about where is the gambling area, where is the area for love of the mother or mm -hmm. something. It became not science. And I discovered this recording from humans. I hope to record also single neurons, like they did in uh, Los Angeles, Isaac Fried. But uh, up to now, I am happy with uh, mm -hmm. gamma rhythm because 
גם הריצ'מנט שלי היה very close to, it's much easier to manipulate. So what did you observe in these patients? So what you did, basically you have these, these implanted patients, you have many contacts, uh, over 100 per patient, uh, 16 different uh, electrodes. Um, of course, you cannot go at arbitrary locations in the brain because it must no. be clinically relevant, right? So there are some constraints. Of course. But then what you did, which I found really, really very uh, exciting, is you started to sort of map mirror neuron paradigms to these patients, right? To look at how is now, are these aspects of, of um, the, the sensory motor coupling or the intention coupling uh, coded in the, the, brain, the brains of these patients. So what, what's the, what are the main principles that you observe there? Well, there are two streams in this type of experiment. One is just based on something which is important for clinical purposes, but it has never been studied deeply. An example, pain. Most of people are convinced there are center of pain in the cingulate. Wrong. You can stimulate cingulate, there is never pain. So what happens in the pain, what happens in the cingulate, it's probably the fear that something could happen bad. So you don't feel pain, but you say, I want to go away. Uh, you know, I am uh, distressed. That's what happened in the cigarette. So that's something that you can learn by stimulation. The same is true for, uh, uh, for the insula. We have data from the monkey, but only the you know, surgeon can demonstrate that really the anterior insula mm -hmm. is for disgust. And then I can construct my theory because otherwise it will be only monkey on one side and human. Mm -hmm. That's one part of it that we are now working very hard because they, very hard because they have many, many data. Clinicians do it for critical purposes. They stimulate many, many points in the brain and they store it. Then the only point to send the student mm -hmm. <laughs> take away and to analyze it. Right. The second is to make an experiment, and up to now, I must confess he's right, mm -hmm. our fantasy was not very big because we just replicate a tool. Instead, it will be much more interesting for time mm -hmm. to see decision-taking or uh, uncertainty and so on. So to go a bit higher mm -hmm. in, in the nervous system functions. Right. Mm -hmm. no, but, so, so what you focused on was, was the insula, And you know, we have also to publish. I have young people with me, so they cannot wait two years, three years, the tower test is finished. They said, listen, professor, we have insula, mm -hmm. why right. we don't publish it right mm -hmm. away? And that's, yeah. uh, that's the but, truth. But, but you also in the monkey, and, and you sort of confirmed in the human, you saw, okay, the insula is like... Well, a part of insula, only the rostral part of insula. Okay, rostral part of insula, it, it, it's like valence encoded... Um, relative to ingestive actions, exactly. it seems, right? Excellent. So both humans, definition. humans and macaques. The macaque. same in humans and macaques. Okay. But now, um, to what extent should I think about that in mirroring terms? Because I can also say, well, this is just a higher level representation of a very simple, emotional triggered uh, disgust circuit, but I'm not mirroring this to the other. Why, 
why can we say now in this case that there is a mirroring component to it? Because the fMRI experiment indicated the same voxel uh -huh. are activated in both cases. Right. So when you have natural stimulus mm -hmm. or when you observe. It. So it is overlap between. In this case, it's overlap. The yeah. olfactory yes, driven disgust and the visually observed yeah. disgust yeah. in yeah. another. Real disgust. Yeah. I don't know about moral disgust because the people claim that also more. That's not my field. Well, that's something else that, that we can also talk about maybe a little bit later, right? Because mirror neurons had, had, had quite an impact on the field, and many people had the, the wildest of imaginations what mirror neurons could do. <laughs> Too much. <laughs> right. So do, do you feel that that has also maybe impeded a little the progress, these over-interpretations? No, not the progress. But, uh, you know, I am sometimes surprised because... For example, for many years, I have been asking, but maybe mirror neurons are only in the monkey. But I said, but human and lizard never recorded from humans. And everybody believed that uh, simple, <laughs> complex, hyper-complex neurons are there. And look at the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. The hippocampus is wonderful work mm -hmm. that they did, O'Keefe and Moser. In rodents, mm -hmm. and nobody asked. I don't know why we mirror mm -hmm. triggered something that we are entering into sociology. Well, maybe we should push back and say maybe there are no place cells in the human brain. Yes, but you believe it. <laughs> sure, we do. You do. <laughs> so your study sort of showed that that some of the uh, insular neurons would respond for seeing. Uh, somebody with an expression of disgust. Uh, others would respond to the the smell, a uh, disgusting odorant, and then uh, a subset of neurons would respond to both. So it's that subset that you're describing as the mirror cells in that case. I know only from fMRI that the same voxels. Okay, the voxels. So I yeah. suppose that in voxels there are mirror neurons, but I don't. I have never recorded single neurons from. Okay, so but there's a, a part of yeah. Insular, which but you think is point, everybody seems to believe that since the same voxel, it should be a, a population of neurons which are mm -hmm. right. But the uh, the point is that that it's it's actually in the um, images that you showed. It was quite a small and specific area right. that had these voxels. Right, and so they, the, there's a small area of insular which has mi mirror neurons. Is what you're saying, or mirror neurons for disgust? Yeah. You know, again, since we know only the voxels, we don't know how many neurons yeah, are there. Yeah, well, a small, a small area of insula. It seems to be small areas, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, right. And does that small area, is it the same small area across subjects, or is it...? Again, we have only an average. That's a point which we can now uh, study in, uh, in humans. Mm -hmm. In humans, I mean with uh, stereo AG. Yeah. Not to it, but, but are you now also bringing these paradigms to your intracranial patients, the disgust experiment you're going to do, or you are doing already? No, disgust, no, but fortunately, disgust, it's, I mean, they stimulate the insula because often they are uh, epileptic, mm -hmm. but they don't go, unfortunately, so far mm -hmm. anterior. Okay. It's more in the center of the insula, even the posterior part. Mm -hmm. So the data of this is very little. Right. But the people in France, in Lyon, stimulate mm -hmm. the insula, several times, and mm -hmm. they have discussed. Right. But, so now, but it's more fun to do laughter, I think, is the answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when you could choose disgust mm -hmm. or laughter, which would you choose? <laughs> right. That's a good point, right? Because that's what you show, that, that the, the cingulate cortex yeah. would be more specialized for laughter. 
Agni is a small part of it. Oh, again, yes, exactly. Prayer and singular. Yeah, but but how should we really interpret that? This is this is so confusing to me. Let, let's say we, on, we, why. I'm, I'm, let me tell you. He's <laughs> <laughs> okay. a simple man. Exactly. See his guitar playing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the the point is that um, we find these voxels, so rather localized um, co- response contrasts, right, for for disgust in humans, or now for laughter, right? So that means now I I see a laughing face, I'm responding to that, and what you showed us, which is really fascinating, you show an increase neural activation in the cingulate cortex. What worries me about it is that it seems to tell us that of all these possible combinations of internal valence states and behaviors and goals, you get very localized response. If you have some sort of grandmother cells of, of let's say, this coupling of, of affective states in a social context, right? The mirroring of affective states as sort of in having grandmother cells that encode them. And that what I find annoying about that is that it also pulls away from your earlier idea that the mirror neurons are actually a circuit property of a parietal frontal system, right? So how do you bring these two things together? Well, I think what happens in the cingulate, it receives input from outside and it sends information down because in order to laugh, and you see this laughing was very complicated movement of, so I think there are many output going down which trigger center in the, especially in the periaqueductal gray, and so it determines. So really, that's the, the master. But then the whole action is very complicated at the mm-hmm. primary center. It's not going down to hand and to fascial mm-hmm. nervous. <laughs> but then there is another circuit on top of that, that fMRI doesn't allow you to visualize, because, of course, we're looking at really long time constants, right? You know, with uh, a point which I don't have not discussed, but with fMRI, there is another point. Imagine that you have a very... Uh, weak activation and the activation could go under the threshold that you don't detect but instead with this system you you detect I mean mm-hmm. for when we use uh, fMRI we use seconds not milliseconds so if you have activation of some milliseconds and then it vanished you are lost you said that there is no such an activation so it's not I, I show as similar thing. Mm-hmm. But it's, well, it was this a, a bit of a trick for students because it's not true. It's no, not but completely. This, but it's extremely interesting, right? Because you also showed in your intracranial patients, the action sits in high gamma. So, so right. uh, can we be confident that you will see these high gamma events back in your fMRI as well? Well, there is an experiment done by Christian Kaiser who recorded not intracranially but EEG and fMRI simultaneously. And when you have an activation in correspondence of the motor cortex, you have the synchronization. And so it's, in other words, it's gamma. Mm-hmm. Gamma filtered, but anyway, it's right. gamma. But is it, is it significant for you that these events that you pulled out in intracranial patients was mainly playing out in high gamma? Or th- because I asked you earlier about the patterning of the monkey response in the mirror neurons, and you felt, well, there was nothing really special about it. We had some rate flu- fluctuations that correlated with the task. But now when you bring it to the human brain, it's for now, 
okay, you look at the LFP, you look at the power spectrum, but the main impact is not at some slowly fluctuating signal. You look really at the power in, in the high frequency signal. In the high frequency, which, uh, synchronize it with the uh, signal. Right, which, which in some sense is a somewhat different mode of analyzing the data as you originally did with the macaque monkeys, right, to establish the mirror neurons. In a sense, it's true. Yeah. I hope that I will be able to record single neurons mm -hmm. in the future. But at the moment, that's the best I can have because... No, but it's not a criticism because maybe it's also exciting because maybe why not believe that the human brain is again using a somewhat more sophisticated coding scheme to build uh, I see these kinds point. of circuits, right? Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. we go away from simple rates but we move into a higher dimensional space of, let's say, frequency, high gamma, phase coupling, or that you don't find an appealing No, no, I think it's very interesting what you're saying. Because historically, it, we started with anatomy and with lesion. We said, here is visual area, here is motor area. We know nothing. Then with Huber Wiesel, Monkess and so on, we started to know something about the mechanism. Then fMRI, no mechanism anymore. Again, here is vision, here is motor. <laughs> yes. right. And now we are right. Maybe mm -hmm. we are back now mm -hmm. to learn something about the mechanism, but maybe in a more sophisticated way. Exactly. Like a single neuron with one mm -hmm. tungsten electron. Mm -hmm. That's right, exactly. That may be, you are absolutely mm -hmm. right. That could be mm -hmm. something more than time. That's right. So I think it's, I think it's a great opportunity that you now yeah. open that door and it's actually also consistent with what we see in our intracranial patients in very different tasks. Okay. You, so, you have your record intracranial? Yeah, yeah, yeah we, we do. And in rate, we don't see very much. We see a lot in high gamma, uh, in phase coupling, and so but we use more virtual reality tasks, navigations, decision making, and so on. So it's something else we should talk about. So when I will come next time, yeah. only for scientific purposes, <laughs> you will show me. Absolutely, we'll show you everything. <laughs> But okay, now, listen, I have to go. I know, no, we, we have to I finish I have up. this girl from Madrid. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, we will no. make sure you have enough time for the girl from Madrid. Okay. So let, let's go to the finish line. Well, okay. We're, we're almost there. So the girl from Madrid sound, <laughs> sounds, sounds great. very exciting. <laughs> the girl from Madrid. We did not provide the <laughs> girl from Madrid as part of this, of this arrangement. That I have to just declare that before people yeah. get the wrong idea. Okay. Tony. Yeah. So, so the, uh, I think one of the... The striking part of the talk was when you when you moved from talking about this activity as you know describing a response to a uh, a movement or a, or a visual perception and and you began to say well this actually is the basis for empathy so yeah. so the the human response where we see someone's pain and we share it and we share it because we see the expression on their face right. or we hear their cry or whatever so. Um, I mean, and, and that's fascinating, and uh, I think you've presented some quite compelling arguments as to why we should think that. And you also said, then, that uh, in some cases it appeared that that empathic response might, well, it is learned, or some aspects of it are learned, and it could there could be some level of voluntary control, or in some people that it's not enabled or disabled. Could you say a bit more about what you think is, is the, the variation between people with respect to this empathic capability and how we can understand it? Uh, it's difficult to give you a scientific answer in the sense that I don't have patient or people which is highly empathic or no empathic and so I don't know that. Uh, 
But if you think about history and also, no, also about some experiment, because that women, for example, are more empathic, that's clear. That's London, as I told <laughs> to the student, they use only girl, never <laughs> male for that. But if you think on the logic, it's more a logic experiment, not scientific experiment. If you have a mechanism which renders you empathic towards somebody, and this mechanism is destroyed, what will be your behavior? You will consider this person, it's not a person anymore. It's a thing. It's untermenschen. Untermenschen means it's not real. It's something below in evolution uh, regard. So at this point, it seems logical that you can behave uh, in a nasty way. Because, you know, this, I don't know, you probably read or know about the, the uh, Arendt, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, she wrote the book about Eichmann process. And all the psychiatrists said that Eichmann is a good man. He, he likes his wife, he likes the children, he's a good citizen. So one expected a monster. Instead, it turned out that it was a really normal person who simply obeyed the order without thinking about that. As she, she said at the beginning, that I, as a matter of fact, I like a Jewish, I have some friends, but why you obey that? Well, because I, a person who obeyed the order, I am an important functionary in the German government or German administration. So at a certain point, if you lose the feel that what you are doing is something against a human being, why not to be a good administrator to just organize the transport of Jewish from mm -hmm. one camp to another? So there, there will be in some people, or maybe in all of us, the ability to, you know, uh, control uh, the, the degree of empathy, maybe to shut down some of the system. Well, that's not my idea, but uh, it's right. one of my friend philosophers. So that's really derived in Germany, especially from uh, the philosophy of Hegel, who thinks that the, we are just something very small. The important is the state. The state is really the entity which we have to obey and so on. If you think of Hegelian philosophy, maybe that many Germans really feel that state is much more important than individual. So we have to help the Reich to become important. That's again more speculation, but mm -hmm. it makes sense because, uh, for example, in, in England, you, you have not this tradition. Uh, uh, it's more empiricist, it's more individualistic, if mm. you read Adam Smith or the other. In Germany, there is this big tradition of Hegel, which, again, uh, that's not my philosophy, have told me, think also about the Marxists. Marxists is considered the left wing of Hegel, the mm. left Hegelism. Sure. And again, the state is mm. the most important thing. It's mm. When Stalin killed the people, it wasn't mm. it was yeah, but bad. Should, but let's not forget that the Brits, like the Dutch, <laughs> have their own big empires where they also killed plenty of people. <laughs> yeah. And I think so, so, so Aaron talked about the banality of evil, exactly. right? In the argument in the Jerusalem book. And what's really important about that is that what we consider evil can be in some sense a normality, dependent on the context. And there might be a more biological root to that. Uh, which might also go back to the work by Francois Weil, for instance, on, on, let's say, the morality of bonobos and chimpanzees, where uh, this whole idea of us and them is a very important construct to build social cohesion in groups, right? You also define the cohesion of a group by pointing out what is not the group, and that is them. So in that sense, 
this this idea of being able to either empathize or not empathize can also play a constructive role in defining groups but the thing is it can become a runaway right. morality that it also the other now must be destroyed to to sort of maintain the in-group and so but that's not a bit the question but if you compare the macaque brain and the human brain in your experience would the human brain have more capability to overwrite, if you want, these rules of empathy than the macaque brain? Is that also what makes us so powerful and so dangerous? You're absolutely right. I, I heard Tomazello talking mm -hmm. about that, and he said something very similar to what you said. So human brain could be override an excess of people coming from outside. Mm -hmm. So he, he was very cautious that it's true, we have to consider all emigrants, all people as ourselves. But be careful, because there is a mechanism. One mechanism says, which I like very much, that we are empathic towards other people. But there is also mechanism that when this number grow, Mm -hmm. The idea but is that you have to defend your tribe exactly. somehow. But don't forget, empathy is also overrated in some sense, right? Because even if I face my enemy, it is by virtue of me being empathic to my enemy that I can defeat him or her, right? Yeah. So empathy is just my ability to model the other, not necessarily to sympathize with absolutely, the other. Right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So that should be clear to everybody because mm -hmm. otherwise there is a lot of confusion. Exactly, right. right. Mm. So then, um, okay, so, so we, you're in this business for a long time. You're in, in Parma for, for many years. We calculated 45 40. years, right? 40 years. So you've seen a lot in neuroscience. You also led to a revolution in neuroscience with all the positive and negative fallout <laughs> that that brings about, right? Um, so given that experience, what is Giacomo's law that we should adhere to to advance our understanding of the brain and the human condition? Don't forget about cognitive and system neuroscience, mm -hmm. because now I think the, the strong tendency is just to look how it's organized, the visual cortex at the molecular level in a mole, mm -hmm. which is blind. <laughs> 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 okay, no more moles. Right? <laughs> no moles. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last, my last question is so, so I'm, I'm Tony likes traveling. And he likes food as well. Mm -hmm. So as we, we always so it'll be a good restaurant. I've never exactly. been to Parma. So. Exactly. So oh, you must come. We're yeah. gonna send Tony to Parma five years from now, <laughs> but he's gonna pay himself, um, and because he's gonna come and check whether a prediction you're gonna make today was falsified or verified. So what's the one prediction that you would like to see, sort of tested in that five-year time frame? Well, the idea that the brain is really have model inside, say. It's not empiricist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Giacomo Rizzolatti, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank well, you. It was very pleasant. <laughs> the CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.